Welcome to the 47th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. I am your host, Logan Bartlett. And on this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with co-founder and former CEO of HubSpot, Brian Halligan. Uh, For folks that aren't familiar with HubSpot, it's a 20 billion-ish market cap company in the uh, marketing automation space that has since expanded into sales uh, as well as customer service, basically competing with uh, Salesforce.com. Really uh, fun conversation with Brian. We go in a bunch of different directions. He uh, about his decision to step down as CEO and the nearly life-ending incident that led him down that path, as well as founding of HubSpot in the early days, partnering with his uh, longtime co-founder Darmesh and what their uh, business marriage has been like over the course of the last uh, 18 years or whatever it's been. Brian was a very gracious uh, guest. He answered all the questions and was very thoughtful about uh, how to build a company, how to find product market fit, uh, HubSpot's journey along the way, among a bunch of different things. So trust you'll enjoy that conversation. Uh, before we get into it, just a brief reminder, like, share, plug, all the usual stuff. Uh, we really appreciate all the support in continuing to grow the podcast. And so without further ado, Brian Halligan, co-founder founder and former CEO of HubSpot. Starting with COVID, it's been black swan event after black swan event of Best Buy. It's just like completely never a dull moment. And, and, and before that, there was weird stuff that happened, but nothing like what's happened. From a society standpoint, I'm actually interested which one you're referring to. Uh, if it's just like societal stuff between COVID and the... the- societal stuff comes right inside companies. Uh, yeah, COVID, the disease. Yeah, COVID, the recession. COVID, the boom. COVID recession number two, which we're in, you had all the social issues. Yep. You had a war. doesn't really affect companies as much, but a little bit. Could. Um, and you have a banking crisis. All within like a couple of years. Well, you had an interesting personal yeah. timing, yeah, yeah, COVID yeah. too. Uh, totally. I, that was actually my first, I guess, diving right into the meat of it. So you, when did, the, when did all that happen? You got in a snowmobiling accident? That happened two winters ago. I had a really, really bad snowmobile accident and didn't didn't think I was gonna live. I didn't think I was gonna live through it. You were up in Vermont with your son. Up in Vermont with my son, we went kind of off the trail, went down about a mile and slammed into a tree. He confused the the buttons or something. I mean, not that there's culpability in this. But Let's not get into that. But yeah. anyway, we went off the edge of a. Small cliff, small <laughs> cliff, not, not, you know, I think a cliff is a cliff. Yes. Uh, certainly when you're flying off of it in a projectile. And I don't remember it. We both passed out and we're kind of lying in the snow, passed out. And I'm going to say something no one's ever said in your show in a minute. Uh, and we woke up and we're both, you know, I had a lot of broken bones as did are you, you wearing a helmet oh yeah helmet cracked yeah uh we both smacked our heads in a lot of pain and it's 4 30 in the afternoon in vermont middle of february freezing cold day and i never bring my phone snowmobiling because there's just no signal in the whole darn state never mind on the snowmobile trails and so it was about 45 minutes of sitting there in the cold and I was like, well, maybe I do have my phone. And I reached in, pulled, kind of semi-pulled my phone out, and I had just enough signal. No one knew where we were. But I had just enough signal to go 911. I never called 911. 911, by the way, that's the killer app. That thing works. And the lady called the two local fire stations. They're both volunteer. Fire station people called 
the volunteers at their home, they took their snowmobiles. It took them about an hour to find it's pitch black by the time they found us. Are you guys talking? Yeah, but we I was in and out of consciousness, just in a lot you were of pain. Concussed. In a lot of pain. And, uh, and and he broke his femur. He broke his femur. Which I've done. His kneecap and hit his head pretty bad. And he was 17? Yes, 16 or 17. I guess he was 17 at the time. And you, what were your injuries? Concussion, obviously. I broke 13 different bones. Um, I ended up, I got metal. I have, I have three plates and 30-something screws in me. I'm, I'm a walking metal factory. Do you uh, get, when you go through the airport, are they... Uh, no, they're non-ferrous. Oh, well. Slip right through them. Um, and then they sort of drag you, like if you get a ski accident, and, and like they wrap you in a toboggan, drag you up, and then helicoptered us to Dartmouth University Hospital. And I love Dartmouth University Hospital. They saved our lives. It's a trauma center. I had five surgeries in there for a long, long time. Um, so you're sitting there, and you're drifting in and out of consciousness. Yeah. You think you're not going to make it. I was pretty sure we weren't. I was like, we were going to freeze to death. I didn't think like a coyote was going to eat us. I thought we would just die of exposure. And then I remembered I had a phone. And, and the thing that I'm going to say that no one, I'm sure no one's ever saved, said on your uh, podcast is AT&T saved my life. Because of the cell service. I had cell service. And I didn't, it's, it's rare to have cell service in mind. I just had enough cell service. It saved my life. Now that would be different because, you know, the phones and the iWatches have that collision signaling that will happen. But back then, it didn't have that. So that, that was a dark moment. I yeah, was like, sure. I don't know how we're going to get through the night. We were too badly injured to move. Um, but yeah, very, very thankful I made it through. And the volunteer firefighter that came and got you yes. recognized, or he was the guy that like clears your driveway or something? <laughs> it's a small world, but the, the first person who found us, so they sort of spread out to find us, he's, he's asking me questions. And he's like, Brian? Is this Brian, Brian Halligan? I'm like, yeah. I'm Joe. I'm the I'm your driveway guy. I'm your driveway. I'm like Joe. Thank you. <laughs> so, better that than like uh, I went to inbound 2014. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Brian <laughs> Halligan. Uh, that's wow. So 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 you're you're sitting there. What's going through your head? Um, what's going through my head is is life short. It could be very short here. And then if I get out of this alive. I don't want to just keep on the path I was going. I want to zig off that path and and live a, a different life and make some big decisions in my life. Uh, that was going through my head. And so then that led to, how long were you, you had five surgeries? Yeah. I was in the hospital for a while, rehab for a while, then I was in a wheelchair for a long, long time. And I, I, I'll tell you, uh, we, we did something, turns out kind of smart at HubSpot. We had a board meeting two weeks before the accident. And we had the conversation of what happens if Brian gets run over by a bus or, you know, that expression, run over by a bus. And we said, well, Yamini will take over. We all agreed it wasn't a debate by any means. Was that it, just coincidental that it happened two weeks before you totally had this coinc like- Obviously coincidental, yeah. Uh, it wasn't like a plan. But, you, but it's not like something you do every year or like a refresh on, hey, this contingency of- Maybe we do, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but we definitely had just finished it. Uh, and so I wasn't able to talk to anyone or anything like that. It was COVID. People couldn't visit me. And so it's kind of break glass. So Yamini took over. Um, and I was pretty much out of, out of commission for six months. And I had a pretty bad concussion. I couldn't work. And so she she ran and did a fabulous job while I was How gone. long had she been at HubSpot? She had been at HubSpot 
She started like three weeks before COVID. So she hadn't been there that long. No, but she was doing great. She helped us get through COVID, the deep, deep down in the up, up, up of it. When she took over as CEO, things were smooth. She did a great job. Um, and so when I came out of it, uh, one of my go- I didn't want to go back to being public company CEO. I've been doing it for a long time. It's rewarding to a certain extent, but I wanted to do something new. Approaching 10 years in the public markets, right? Or Some eight, eight I think. Yeah. Um, I was just ready for a new challenge. And that was kind of clicking around the back of my head, but I wasn't planning on doing anything about it. But I'm like, this is a this is the time. I'm going to do it now. And so as I'm getting ready to come out of my, what do we call it, my medical leave, I called my co-founder Darmesh and I you know, told him I'm, I'm not coming back as CEO, I'll come back as chairman, but not coming back. What do you think about Yamini as CEO? He's like, he was super cool. He's like, sure. Um, and then I remember a bunch of conversations, but I had a conversation with Yamini about it and she did not see it coming and didn't want it. It was actually a struggle to convince her to take the CEO gig. She's like, I know you've been through a lot, but let's not rush this. You know, I'll be a COO. We'll work together side by side and we'll build up to this. I say, you basically got two choices. You can be the CEO or going to go find some schmuck from the outside to be the CEO. I think you should do it. You're ready. And so fortunately she did. And she's done a really nice job. That's amazing. I, uh, what what happens uh, as a public company CEO? I, I guess Bill McDermott went through something as well when he was when he was at SAP. What what actually happens to the stock price when this happened? Was there anything like it being a public market company uh, versus a private company? Like was there anything that that ended up happening from a share price standpoint as you're going through all of this? I actually don't know. Yeah. I've never You'd have even, to think so. I never look back at it. Yeah. I actually don't know. It took a couple days, I think, for people to process how serious the accident was because no one could call me. No one could come in the hospital. It was like it was tough to get info. And so I think they actually had to wait a couple days before they got their arms around how serious it was. And then then they could tell the street and tell everybody at the same time what had happened. I never looked back to yeah, see if you, you if weren't Wall involved Street, in that. I don't know if Wall Street gave a hoot. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the stock price went up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Wow. What a, what an amazing uh, story. And so so when you when you were thinking about the transition, you thought through there's some things I like doing, some things I don't like doing. How much was, hey, I want to get rid of the one-on-one meetings and all the stuff associated with being a CEO within HubSpot. That's what you wanted to remove versus free up time to go do things outside of HubSpot. Both. I wanted to get out all the one on one meetings um, and so many other things. The day to day of running a public company, C- being a public company CEO, it's very hard work. Um, and at times it's really fun, at times it's, it's a drag. But overall, I would say it was great. It was eight years, it was great. It was just time for me to move on. I wanted to get into climate. I, one of the things about HubSpot I loved is we have a big impact on our customers and our community and our partners and all that. I'm like, what could I do in climate? That was going to be my next, you know, my next adventure. And I wanted to make room in my life to do something in climate. At, at a personal level, it sounds like people recommended you started meditating. Uh, was like universal. Anyone you consulted with sort of seemed to suggest that as as something that you should do. Why, why was that the case? And is it something you've actually taken on? I think the funny thing that, ha- well, I had a concussion, which I don't recommend, I don't recommend for you at home. Uh <laughs> And 
I spoke to neuroscientists about it. I, I had a shaman come and visit me. I spoke to, of course, psychiatrists, psychologists. And no matter who I spoke with, they all said the same thing, meditate, just meditate, and you'll get through it. And so, all right, I'll learn to meditate. And so I started meditating back then, helped a lot. I still meditate today. Was there anything that they, any reason or rationale behind the, uh, all the stuff? Apparently it's super helpful if you have a concussion. Uh, part of the problem I had when I had a concussion, I was having panic attacks. Meditation is really good for something like that. Um, and they said, hey, you want to go to this panic attacks under control? Meditation is kind of the way to go. And they were right. It took a while before they got under control, but um, but it worked. Ironically, like, I just think of, of, of my own mind and, like, when I'm in the best, you know, mindset and happiest and most fruitful part of its meditation. I started after I got healthy exercising every day, you know, weights one day, cardio the next, even a bigger impact on my psyche and my happiness and my clarity of thinking. Ironically, I think exercise helps your mind as much, if not more than meditation. I, I, I've actually found, I've started to do that as well, just like exercising very regularly and yeah. kind of getting in a cadence of actually, I went to the gym for, you know, whatever, my entire life, but never actually tracked incremental gains and stuff yes. and really tried to, and you can't really manage what you don't measure. And this is true of companies as well, right? And yeah. so actually starting to track, hey, what's my weight? What weights am I doing? How yeah. much can I bike? And any, it, for whatever reason, just being able to see incremental progress or whatever has been super helpful. I did. The other thing that happened to me is just I got the new I, the iWatch and started tracking. The iWatch is interesting, but the app, the health app on your phone, my goodness, can you measure a lot it's of amazing. interesting things? And I saw the improvement, and I'm very data-oriented, and it really motivated me to see that improvement, obviously my weight and all that. But I think the biggest return has been in between my years. Mentally. Yeah. I, uh, it's amazing all the health. I, I have one of the eight sleeps that you put on yep. your bed and track, and it, it's a, it's such a snitch. Anytime I have wine before I go to sleep or a totally. beer or coffee, totally. it calls me out every single totally. time. And totally. it's, it's amazing. Like all the different totally. things. Like half your listeners. I'm obsessed with Andrew Huberman. We're on the, people don't know this. We're on the seventh floor. If Andrew Huberman told me to dive out the window of the seventh floor and land flat in my face on the sidewalk and said it was good for my health. I'd probably do it's it. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel like he's got a whole generation of people who would do anything. You I, tell I had I, I tweeted recently <laughs> that like he could probably convince a lot of adult men to wear diapers. If he, he said it was, could. if he said it was productive, <laughs> he, and I, he actually liked it, which is good on Twitter. I was like, good. He, <laughs> he at good. least has a good sense of humor about about all this stuff. We we touched on the public market thing. I've um, a lot of CEOs, certainly private company CEOs seem to have some apprehension about going public mm -hmm. and say, hey, they're going to be short-term focused uh, the, the, and, and it's going to change the stock price and the culture of the company or the stock price is going to change every day and that'll change the mindset of the employees. And um, I, I know it's been very helpful. You you all went public at $800 million market caps? So yeah, something like so, that. And now, I mean, 18, 19, 18, 19 at the peak of everything, it was north of 30, right? Yeah, uh, I don't even remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's counting i uh, yeah, that was probably when you got hurt <laughs> that was after actually yeah yeah uh has did you find going public helpful for hubswat like culturally and execution wise i think we did a couple we do a lot of things wrong a couple of things we did right leading up to the ipo for like a couple of years we the mantra was um 
IPO is a starting line, not the finish line. Starting line, not the finish line. We just repeated it. Like people were so sick of hearing it. And then once we went public, if anyone was talking about the share price or looking at the share price in a meeting or putting it on a slide, that was like, don't do it around Halligan. He doesn't want to hear about the stock price. We don't want to be reacting to short-term things moving around the stock price. Um, we did some things internally also that enabled us to keep the level of transparency inside of the company. And I'm not going to get the terms right, but effectively inside a company, you have to name a certain amount of officers who can see everything. And then the rest of the employees can't see everything. Those named officers can only trade within certain windows because they can see everything. We set it up such that basically everyone's a named officer in the company. And so everyone can't sell within those windows. And so that allows us to be a little bit more transparent and act more like we acted pre-IPO. So we did a series of things that, that, that helped HubSpot continue to operate like it was a private company. And we didn't have a whole, it didn't feel that different to the employees, I don't think. What about what about the investor base and setting expectations? Obviously, you went from very charismatic, friendly VCs who uh, have <laughs> not me personally, but other other VCs uh, that were on the board to I guess I mean the the shareholder base diversified, right? And you got much more finance, hedge fund, mutual fund, all that. All it didn't that. diversify; it totally changed over. Yeah, it flipped yeah. over. Uh, I would just say that our VCs, I don't have a lot of complaints about our VCs. A lot of people complain about their VCs. Uh, my only complaint, by the way, about VCs is every time I come out here, the, so we're a Boston company, and every time I come out here to the West Coast, we'd go up and down San, this is before everybody was in San Francisco, we'd go up and down Sand Hill Road, and we would get crushed. Like, we just get nose up and down Sand Hill Road every time. And so... I remember those trips very well, and I get I like shudder when I go by Sandale Road. But we had a good set of VCs who were super supportive and helpful. They were slightly misaligned at times, but they were generally where. Good. Where was that? Where did you feel that misalignment? Um, we had one particular investor who really wanted us to go. Bam, Fortune five hundred. You know, go do the Fortune five hundred. Uh, go do the Marketo. What? Go play the same game Marketo is playing. That's the right game to play. That's an example of where we had a bunch of tension with one particular board member about that. I won't say who it is. Um, and different, you know, I kind of think of a board meeting with, with VCs as you have five, four, let's say four VCs around the table. I used to joke we needed seats for the four VCs and they each needed an extra seat because they all had their pet rock and they brought their pet rock with them to every meeting. You knew what the pet rock was. You knew when in the meeting the pet rock was going to come up. And so we were generally aligned, but there was some misalignment. On Pet that. Rock was just like the, whatever they're like that particular example. Like, why are we going? The enter- everybody goes to the enterprise. The play is the enterprise. You guys are missing out. This mid market doesn't exist. You know that. You know, don't sell the startups. You got to sell the enterprises. That was a very counterintuitive, at least to me. You all, and to some extent, uh, I guess I mean Zendesk was kind of in the mid market yeah. as well. Shopify, Toby, they've done a good job at the lower end of the market, but. It was an adage of, hey, money is made in the enterprise, right? And that was definitely the pull that Pardot saw, right? These are these are names long gone to the average yeah. listener. That, uh, But Pardot was a business that Salesforce ended up buying for $110 million, or Exact Target ended up buying, right? And then it got part of Salesforce. Eloqua is now a part of Oracle, probably $800 million yeah. acquisition, something like that. Right. Marketo, uh, people maybe you're more familiar with. It was yep. a public company. 
Ultimately, Vista Equity took it private and then sold to Adobe as well. But those, all those players were more mid-market enterprise focused. Um, what was the appeal to the more SMB part of the customer base to you? Because it was definitely a counterintuitive thing to what was consensus at the time, at least among you know the VCs that all talked to each other. It was an incredibly unpopular decision with investors. Uh, it was a big reason why we got our butts kicked on Sand Hill Road. Uh, we would own a lot more of HubSpot through those rounds had we, you know, done what they all wanted us to do. We had a counterintuitive opinion on it where we thought that the Internet at the time, and this is 100,000 years ago in 2006, disproportionately benefited small businesses relative to large businesses. I actually think this is very true today as well. Um, Why do you think that's the case? I agree with you, but... What the shift online and how it actually benefits small versus big? Just, just if you think way back then, two thousand six, pr- prior to that that era, the people who had marketing leverage in the market. We grew up in marketing. We're totally CRM now, but we grew up in marketing. But the marketing leverage really came with money, like Super Bowl ads, TV ads, radio ads, and your success was very much about the width of your wallet. But as the internet came on and people stopped subscribing to magazines and started subscribing to blogs and started using Google and they stopped watching ads on TV and they used DVRs and so on, so forth and so on. There's a whole wholesale change in the way humor behavior was happening. Your success turned into much more about the width of your brain than the width of your wallet. And, uh, and it was about how, how nimble and how fast and how smart you could be, not how much money you had. And it was, it was like a wormhole that opened up in the economic engine that you could create a lot of leverage uh, by writing great blog content, create great social content, great video content, you know, starting a podcast, whatever it would be, you can gain a lot of leverage quite quickly. And no one knows you're a dog, right? There's a, the old, yep. you don't know the size of the company because who, you know, it could be one person. Okay, let's clarify that because probably a lot of people don't know this. So there's, the, in, in, by the way, that, that this cartoon I'm going to refer to was in every slide deck we had with the VC. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, that's funny. And it's a picture, one picture of a dog typing on the internet. And there's another dog, it's a New Yorker cartoon, another dog looking over the shoulder of the dog. And the dog typing on the internet looks at the other dog. He says, you know, the great thing about the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And it's kind of true. Yeah, totally. They don't know the size of the company. (laughs) Your websites all look the same. I mean, it used to be you would go to an office and see how, whatever, luxurious the space is and see people bustling around. And now you don't know. I mean, you can sort of obfuscate. It's the original catfishing of B2B, I guess, is people don't know. And that was one of the ideas when you were founding HubSpot, Darmesh had his blog at the time, right? And you were talking to VCs and trying to help them in sales and marketing. So what were those two insights that that came together at the genesis of HubSpot? Yeah, there were two ahas that led to HubSpot. I was was spending a lot of time with startups helping them with sales and marketing because I had grown up at this company, PTC, that was, you know, back in its day. It was a pretty good company, but back in the day, was really good at sales and marketing. I want to talk about that because that's like the iconic sales culture. I feel like of of I mean that that yep. manifestation has has made its way through Okta and Snowflake, and you sort of go through yep. Confluent and like a bunch of the. I mean that is the the MedPick, Medic, all Medic, that stuff. Yep. Yeah, Medpick, that yep. is the. So I want to talk about the influences there, okay. but you you had had that experience, and uh, and so VCs and um, startups all were like, "Can you come in and help us? Can you talk to us?" And I, I just remember I'd spend time with the founders and the head of marketing and head of sales, and I'd be investigating what they're doing. 
And they all did the same stuff. They bought a list in the cold call. They bought a list and uh, that's an email. They'd hire expensive PR firm that do a trade show and that advertise as much as they can. And as I investigated their programs and the way they were doing this stuff, it was pretty similar to what I had done at PTC. It wasn't like we were 50 times better. In fact, I was placing PTC people in these companies. And I was starting to just get kind of negative, like marketing doesn't work. People are blocking this stuff out with caller ID, with spam protection, with you name it, just hard to interrupt people. While I was wallowing in some negativity, Darmesh started blogging his way through B-School. And every time he heard an interesting lecture, he had a little domain on startups.com, he would write a blog article. And this he was an early startup blogger. And he had 100,000 times more interest in his crap little blog than any of my wealthy venture-backed startups with all these talented people in them. And that's where the uh, original idea came of, like, there's a new way to market. There's a new way to sell. Uh, we're going to call it inbound marketing, pulling people in, matching the way you market with the way people buy. And contrast it with the old school way, outbound marketing, which is kind of a crappy way to market anyway. And that was an idea we kicked around, inbound versus outbound, evangelizing it. And then people said, well, the, it's hard to do. We have to buy, you know, a marketing automation system, a blog, a website, SEO tools, social media. We have to hire a bunch of consultants. We have to put a CRM system in. Like, it's too hard. So that became HubSpot. We built an all-in-one system to enable meal mortals to, to market online. And so 2006, there was WebsiteGrader.com, which maybe, do you all still own that? We do. It's still out there. But was that the original product that no. led to, okay, that was no. just an ancillary thing to the side? A lot side? of people do. Our original product was HubSpot. It was, okay. And it was an all-in-one marketing tool. And, and, and the value prop was very much around this idea of inbound like how do you transform your mar your marketing and get really good at your website and your blog and social how do you get really good at that in the in the re the way that website grader tool came about was i would go on go visit a potential customer and before i went to visit that potential customer i'd be like hey i'd interrupt our mesh and be like how does their website code look? And do they have their RSS set up right? And like, I'd ask them a bunch of technical questions. SEO tags. Yeah, and like, how many backlinks are there or whatever? And it would, it would bother him. <laughs> take him 15 minutes, like, four times a day. And he's finally like, yeah, I'm just going to, tired of this. I'm just going to build Brian a little tool so he can, doesn't So you can scrape me. and say, hey, we can come help you and figure this out. And so I just started doing it on my own. And then I was like, you know, it'd be cool if I could just email this out. It would be even cooler if we just put it on the web and people can do it themselves. And so it was really a lead gen tool in a way for us to gain credibility in the market and credibility in the eyes of the prospect that we actually knew what we talked about, which we actually did know who we were talking about. Uh, and it spread quite nicely. And that became a really good tool to pull people into HubSpot. It was an early freemium offering effectively of HubSpot. And and so there was a decision, though, a debate in the early days of whether or not to call it inbound versus internet marketing, yes. and sort of the branding of category creation, right, versus be much more, um, I don't know the right term, objective in how you describe, because it was internet marketing, right? But you actually chose this more category creation path. It sounds like that was a little bit of a contentious discussion or something you guys batted around quite a bit in the early days. It was, I wouldn't call it contentious, just, we just... Iterative? back and forth on whether we should call it internet marketing software, which it was, you know, that's sure. what it was. It's a descriptive term. And if you said it, people are like, yeah, that's a thing. You're one of those things. Great. Uh, or should we call it inbound and create an enemy called outbound? And 
We ended up going with that. I think that turned out to be a good call. I would say for those of you listening at home or on your Peloton or wherever you are, uh, it is not for the faint of heart. Like we put 90% of our marketing muscle behind inbound to the expense of HubSpot, the brand, for many years. We wrote a book called Inbound Marketing. By the way, don't recommend writing a book. It's a lot of work. Uh, We started a conference, which is a ginormous project around inbound and ran that conference. We wrote two blog articles a week for years about the topic and everything ancillary around the topic. Like We put our back into that category, and it worked. But it's hard work, and it doesn't always doesn't always stick. In fact, we tried that again when we moved from we moved from being a marketing application company to a CRM suite company, and we tried to create inbound sales, inbound selling, inbound sales. We tried all kinds of stuff, didn't stick. Interesting. Yeah, it's hard to create a category. In, in in picking inbound as a as a category, you're sort of othering outbound, right? Like yep. that's not what we're going to. You always want for. an enemy. You always want an enemy, and, and and punching up in some ways against that enemy because outbound was the way sales was done. It was sort of the the vast majority of everything else. Everybody it. was doing outbound, and outbound was kind of sketchy. No one really liked cold receiving cold calls. No one really liked getting cold emails. No one really liked watching those TV ads. Like it was a good enemy to pick on. It was not a well liked thing. And, and, and in creating that polarization, and I mean, thinking back to Mark Benioff and the no software totally. thing, like the for people that don't know, I mean, there was a bunch of stories in the late 90s, I guess, early 2000s of Mark Benioff creating a no software logo and doing protests outside of Siebel and whatever, yeah. all that stuff. Um, I think that stuff worked. It works. Uh, but in terms of thinking about inbound as a category, how did you actually resource against HubSpot's brand versus this category creation? We starved HubSpot's brand, really starved it. And Just, hey, we'll evangelize this category and then HubSpot will be the beneficiary. Not of only this that, category. but like our blo- we were really early active bloggers. We got quite good at it. And when people would visit our website, they wouldn't know we were a software company. And that, that, was irritating to <laughs> to us. They'd think I, we were a media company, and we were like, oh, they have this website greater, and they have this blog, and oh, you get software? What does your software do? That took us, you know, we really sub-optimized HubSpot for inbound. For I aspire to the days that people think of me as a podcaster and not a VC. <laughs> that'll be, that'll I bet be, people do, by the way. Yeah, I, I I actually, the, the podcast actually, guy. Walking in the strip today, I didn't Google you. I, I didn't know if you were like the hired podcaster yes, for that, Red Boy yeah, or yeah. if you were if I, if I, you. If, now I know if, that you actually, you're running the joint here. It, 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 depends, it depends how my investments go. I might end up being the hired podcaster over time. I didn't know that you were running uh, Red Boy. Yeah, well, your words, not mine. I think my partners might disagree with that at times. But uh, so so you did that. And uh, so, so then the conference and obviously that became a movement. How did you think about that? Was there always this vision of being a suite of, because the other thing you, you all have done very well is you had this wedge what was the product initially it was an seo blogging social all-in-one thingy and, and and so there was the marketing automation component i guess but you did uh, we didn't really do that you didn't do it in fact we purposely stayed out of email marketing and marketing automation and we didn't win that for many years and who was that was that was marketo and eloqua and- well email marketing was Constant contact yeah. and exact target and vertical response. And then market automation emerged out of that. So that was Marketo, Eloqua being the big players part of was in that space. Yeah. And and at one point you thought about 
maybe merging with Marketo. You guys did one side and they did the other. Yeah, they, they, Phil Fernandez, the CEO of, uh, of Marketo and I, oddly became really good friends. Great and, guy. Uh, and even back then, people used to refer to us as doppelgangers. But the truth is, we were top of the funnel, like, you know, pulling people in. They were much more about, oh, I've got a lead. How do I segment those leads, nurture those leads? And so we were about to go into that middle of the funnel, go into marketing automation. We wanted to make a big bet there. And and we were getting very creative about it. In fact, we visited part, we had a couple meetings with Pardot about potentially acquiring them. Uh, couldn't get there. We pitched, I pitched Phil on the idea of making Marspot, HubSpot and Marketo combined. Uh, I was uh, I was declined. Um, and we ended up buying a little startup called uh, uh, Performable, who was building kind of a new type of, of uh, marketing automation system. They were a tiny little company at the time, really no sales marketing capabilities, but they had good developers, good product people. So we ended up injecting that into the company and then adding that automation capability. Was that David Cancels? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cancel Who, CEO of Drift yes. as well. Yep. So so then in, sh- in that shift, I mean, it sounds like you had some tools, right? I, I guess, I don't know if that's the right way of describing it. And HubSpot over time has iterated quite a bit on building a big product totally. surface area. Now it's totally. marketing automation and uh, customer service and sales and all of that. Was was that a cult, the ability to execute on this wide to kind of go from an individual point solution to essentially a platform today, right? Yeah. That actually has an integrated suite of stuff that competes with Salesforce and can do whatever uh, all of that. Was that a were there architectural decisions that really enabled that? Was that a cultural thing? Was that like how were you able to actually build out? Because so many companies struggle with just getting the first act right, and then the second and third obviously seem like you know pie in the sky dreams. What would you say you guys did uniquely well? Uh, I'm glad you brought up Salesforce because we had in our mind that we wanted to move from marketing to sales, eventually build a suite. Our hand was forced a bit. We we were a good partner with Salesforce, but they bought Exact Target and Pardot at the same time because Exact Target owned Pardot. And then they bought Radiant 6 and Buddy Media, a whole bunch of other companies. And one year, all of a sudden, they went from being... We used to have a funny saying that that in our pitches to VCs, we used to say, Salesforce.com is to sales, it's up to what it was to marketing. It's a pretty good, you know, stuck on people's heads. Until they buy. And we used to say under our breath, like, until Salesforce.com wants to become the Salesforce.com market. And then they decided they wanted to do that. And all of a sudden, bam, you know, we have a new competitor, and it's a you know, really uh, well-run competitor. And so at that point, we said, okay, we've been thinking about doing this. Let's pivot, and let's go from being a marketing app to a full front office suite. And the way we did that was unique. Um, we knew we wanted to build sales and service and all kinds of front office applications, but sales would be first. And to do it, we took a, a team of co-founders. Um, one of them was Brian Balfour, who you probably have interviewed. Uh, one was Mark Robert, who you might have interviewed. Sure, no, I know uh, Mark, though. And uh, one of them was Christopher O'Donnell, is a HubSpot person. And anyway, that team went through a couple of machinations, but it ended up the team ended up being Christopher O'Donnell and I being the co-founders of that team. And we separated into kind of a separate part of the building. Um, we allowed them to use a whole different tech stack and to kind of reinvent everything from scratch. And the job of that team was to do two things. One, build a sales application. And two, to build a freemium business model. To that point, our business model really wasn't, people think we started freemium. It it wasn't freemium. Uh, And so they iterated, we iterated on that over the course of about a year and a half. And 
we were getting nice market traction on this little small app we had. I wouldn't even call it SFA at the time. And we we're getting really nice traction on the freemium motion. And we said, okay, it's time to combine the two. And combine the two marketing and sales. Yes. And then we what we tried to do is have the sale, the startup inside of HubSpot acquire the bigger company. It's the way we sort of described it. So the guy who ran sales for that group came and ran a big chunk of sales for the marketing. We tried to get the marketing organization to do freemium and all that. So we kind of did a reverse. How many people were on sales by the time you did this reverse merger? There was probably six, 70 or 80 sales reps on the marketing side, and there were probably 10 on the sales okay, side. Okay, so in the full team on sales, how many people did you put on product and, and engineering focused on sales? Oh, on the, oh, so the sales group was probably um, 20, 20, yeah, 20, 30 people maybe. 30 people of a company of 500? Yeah, and so that 30-person company, we tried to get them to acquire the other company. I wouldn't say we necessarily pulled that off, but the idea of or we're changing the business model. It's going to be a freemium business model, much lighter touch model, much more disruptive in the industry because no one in CRM had thought about doing anything like that before. Um, and merging those products was really uh, key. And you did this, were you public at the time? This is the interesting thing. We did this about a year before we went, we, we started this about a year before we went public. And so the on the IPO Roadshow, we had a decent marketing business, hundred and something million in marketing revenue, growing pretty fast. And like, oh, by the way, we have this million dollar sales business that we think could be huge one day. And it was just sort of brushed off. And now it's a huge, huge business, but totally brushed off. We didn't get any credit for the second thing. But it was a very awkward time to go public because we had a huge initiative going on around this new sales business. And it was the future. Did, did uh, from a product standpoint, did you guys you said you restarted, gave everyone the autonomy to make all new technological yes. product decisions. How did, because actually merging those two together and bringing them back in, because I think of HubSpot as an integrated suite. One of the things you haven't done that Salesforce has done is acquired a lot of different yes. companies of scale. Yes. And that's one of the benefits is you're tightly integrated in a way that they're not. And so how did that merger from a tech code base and all that work? Okay. I just remember the early discussion on, this wasn't my decision, but it was an early discussion the sales org had built a workflow tool, um, an automation tool, and obviously the marketing team had an automation tool. And it was like, well, which one should we use? And then we were starting to think about the third product, service product, and they were talking about a third automation tool. It's like, wait a second. We just need one automation tool here. We don't need three. And so we made a big decision. You can't see it on your Peloton right now, but like, if I think of HubSpot, like, on the app level, we get five apps, your know, marketing, sales, service, ops, website. And that's maybe 15, 20% of the developers. The rest of the developers are kind of below the line. And we built a, a set of shared services, you know, automation, website pages, messaging, you name it. So you had the UI that faced the customers, yes. but then all the other underpinnings yes. were. And then each of the owners of the hubs on top would basically use those shared services. And that enables the whole thing to feel like an Apple-type experience where they all rhyme together. I don't think of HubSpot as even integrated. It's one thing. So we never really had to integrate stuff together. You mentioned Apple. Steve Jobs, what was the story of you going to uh, the iPod as an influence for HubSpot in the yep. early days, which is <laughs> an interesting thing. I don't know if people uh, realize the, the B2B software company influenced by Steve Jobs, but I guess he casts a big okay. shadow. Hey, very long shadow. Uh, Okay, it was one of the most formative days in HubSpot history. I was in 
at the Sloan School studying. So HubSpot was founded at Sloan. You and Darmesh yes. met there. And basically founded in there. And we had a field trip. And the field trip went to the West Coast. It was a three-day field trip. Um, and there's probably 80 of us. And we in the morning, we visited Apple. And this is 2004 or 2005. Um, and in the afternoon, we visited this little startup called Salesforce.com and Mark Benioff. In the morning, I remember we walked into Apple. And, and it, this is an interesting time to visit Apple because the iPod, it was like generation two of the iPod had just came out. It was on fire. I mean, he was walking on water when he walked in the room. And he was in a surly mood when Jobs walked in the room. And he was like, how did you get on my calendar? And he was not, he just got up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. And then I remember he kind of glared out in the audience. And one of my classmates, J.P. Gorski, raised his hand. And he said, uh, Mr. Jobs, we're from MIT Sloan School. And we're here to study disruptive innovation. And we can't think of a better person to talk about it than you. And he just, it just melted. I don't know what it was. JP melted him and he, and Jobs got up there and just talked for an hour and a half straight. And the thing that stuck in my head was he said, you know, I really built an MP3 player and there's lots of those on the market, but they're really hard to use. You know, you have to be kind of technical to set them up and get the music synced to them. And then he built this freemium iTunes thing. And then I had 99 cents a song. So it's sort of this one plus one plus one equals 10 effect to transform the music industry. And I just was sitting there. I'm like, this is just like the marketing problem. You have to hire an SEO consultant, some social media tools to put an email marketing system, blogging software, website, CRM. You have to buy like 17 apps to do a proper job. Why can't we build an all-in-one easy to use, you know, system to do that? So that was super formative in my head. We took a bus up from the Valley to San Francisco to Salesforce.com. And I'm from the software industry, so I'm very familiar with Salesforce.com. Most of my classmates were not. It was a small startup at the time. No one heard of Mark Benioff for Salesforce.com. Mark was really late. Um, and Team Zuo, who's the... Uh, uh, Zora. Zora CEO, was like an intern at the time and stepped in for him and did a valiant job. And then Mark kind of came in late. And Mark was very generous with his time. And he did a little, you know, his thing. And then at the end of his thing, he said, are there any questions? And I'm in the front row. And I had a lot of questions. And so I raised my hand. Everyone else is falling asleep. And Everyone, like, this no is- one's falling asleep. But no one's like, I, I don't, why is this relevant? It's a startup. This, this company's, you know, whoever. And it's like right on point for me. And Mark talked about how he was going to go to the enterprise and how he was going to go uh, very wide. And I remember... I just remember having a back and forth with him about that, thinking, huh, I wonder if he goes to the enterprise. I wonder if someday someone, and I'm reading, of course, Clay Christensen's Innovative Dilemma book, somebody eventually will come underneath. I wonder if that will actually happen. So those two meetings were quite formative in the history of HubSpot. And I thank Sloan School for a lot of things, but setting up that day was really, really... It's incredible to have both of those. I, on the same day. The same day. <laughs> yes. I uh, Whoever the booking event person was for Steve Sloan... Steve Saka. It was Steve, Steve Saka. Saka. Hopefully, he, <laughs> hopefully he had a very good career of getting, uh, you know, he could probably do my job pretty well as well. Uh, no, it's uh, it's super interesting that 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 all happened in one day. So another thing, um, I guess, Grateful Dead. So you wrote a book about Grateful Dead. Yep. And Grateful Dead also was an influence in a bunch of different ways, I guess. But one was the concept of 
black licorice and how that was how they they framed what their music was like and who it appealed to. So how did black licorice and their distribution strategy, where did that fit in uh, to HubSpot? You have all these like very interesting formative things that uh, sort of influence the business. Yep. Uh, Grateful Dead was incredibly influential on the formation of HubSpot. It wasn't so much the black licorice thing. I'll tell the black licorice thing, but that wasn't what influenced us. Somebody asked Jerry Garcia about their rabid fans. Like, why are people such rabid fans of the Grateful Dead? And he said, you know, the Grateful Dead's like black licorice. And the interviewer's like, what? He said, 10% of the world loves black licorice. 90% of the world really does not care for black licorice. We're like black licorice. (laughs) And that's sort of the internet. And that was something we were calling out at the time of the internet. Like, you have to be a little polarizing. Now, it turns out that happened in spades on the internet and turned out to be a very bad thing, a bad aspect of the internet, the polarization. Social media in particular. Yeah, uh, polarization was incredibly well. But we were advising boring old security software startups to be polarizing. Take a stand. Yeah, take a stand on something, differentiate yourself. And um, little did we know what would happen over time. So so what element did influence? uh, A lot. But uh, one of the things the Grateful Dead did was they were very much contrarians. They had no, in every way, they didn't like conventional wisdom, in every way. And I wrote a whole book about it. Um, and I'm surprised you weren't one of the, the five people who read it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, they were actually brilliant in a lot of ways. So they fought conventional wisdom every way. And one of the ways they did that was, let's just go, let's do a little role play, you and I. Yeah. I know that you're a huge Beyonce fan, right? Sure. <laughs> Who is it? When you go, that's a good way to get canceled online. Is saying you're not a Beyonce fan. So let's when go with you this. go to your Beyonce concert and you show up in San Francisco and you go and you bring your giant camera and your giant microphone and all your recording stuff and you show up at the front door, what happens? <laughs> they do not let you take that in. They do not let you in. And why would that be? Uh, protective of licensing rights yeah. and content yeah. and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, It makes sense. Now, if you showed up at a Grateful Dead concert and you had a giant microphone set up and a big camera and all your gear, what happens? Pull you forward and it ends up on nugs.net or whatever. The, that does the... now. But back in the day, they gave you really good seats in what's called the taper section. And everyone set their microphones up and people would record the concerts and uh, then they go back, let's say, to their dorm room and they make recordings of those concerts. And usually people would go to several concerts in a row. And we can get into why that is. But you record the concerts. You went to 10 in a row. You pick the best one. You record it. You make 10 copies and you give them out. And then let's say you and I were at some party and people are dancing to this strange gypsy music. And, and you say to me, like, what is this music? It seems great. And your, next, your answer is, well, why don't you come check it out? They're going to be playing at Madison Square Garden next week. Come on the road with me, and we'll go to Philly, and we'll go on tour with them. They were the original like viral marketers. They gave away their content marketers, inbound marketers. They gave away their content to pull more people in. That was very influential on us. And so, so that, coupled with Darmesh's blog, I assume you realize that there's a different way of reaching yeah. people and yeah. let us let us enable that. Yeah. And the early, the other early blog that influenced was Thirty Seven Signals had a sure. really good blog 150 years ago, and they stopped it, which was like, oh, I can't believe you stopped it. Uh, but they were they had 
so much momentum through their blog, and they were terrific bloggers. Talk about polarizing on the internet. Yeah, right? they are a little polarizing on the internet. Uh, they were less polarizing back then. Yeah, they've got. Uh, and Joel Spolsky was another early business blogger. Sure. Um, that that had a lot. Joel of was at. I guess he was th- uh, Trello or whatever that whole uh, family of. of I lost stuff. track of Joel, but we loved his blog, and we were like, "That's the way to market now." Yeah, reaching people. I mean, yeah. I guess I guess this is it. This element. is it now. This you is start a podcast or a video, or you get good at TikTok or whatever. Whatever. On the on the product side, uh, so we talked about the evolution of of HubSpot, um, but I, I think a board member said to you, uh, you were more sizzle than steak at one point from a product standpoint that you had a lot of splash and pizzazz and content but uh and i think i I read that you were a 30 (laughs) nps uh which is which is actually pretty good in b2b but not where you ended up so i don't remember what we were but it was well south of that more like 15 15 yeah and then we got it up you know in the 50s but uh he was right uh i remember he said it and it hurt um, he's like, you're more sizzle than steak. You got this awesome conference and you got your blog and, you know, you're writing your books, but like, you know, word of mouth isn't good enough on your product. You know, you're losing in the market to Marketo, et cetera, et cetera. That amongst a lot of other data points influenced us. And we turned the company into a company that was obsessed with how do you turn a perfect stranger into a paying customer to a company that's completely obsessed with how do you turn a paying customer into a delighted customer that's telling all their friends? And it was a sea change of a shift. And the way we did that was numerous ways. We changed the bonus incentive plans and comp people on NPS. We started me- measuring NPS obsessively. And As like a, a percentage of a management bonus. Yeah. We really moved the, the geography around the P&L, like really the sales and marketing line on the P&L shrunk and the R&D line really grew. And that's still been going on, like as a percentage of revenue, sales and marketing has been shrinking. You would think a company our size, R&D would be shrinking. That's kind of what happens 16 years into a, a startup. It's continuing to grow as a percentage. So we really put our money where our mouths were, really invested in usability, really invested in growth. Um, Did that come at the expense of near-term revenue? Yeah, definitely. And I'm a big believer in you've got to be able to take two steps back so you can take four steps forward. And there's a million times where we took two steps back to take four steps Did you communicate that to, like, I mean, the investor said this, and so there must have been a recognition. Did you tell the board, hey, we're going to do this, and we're going to pick some point in the future? How how far in the future was a reasonable enough timeline to feel like you could make change around this? Did you think sort of a in-year milestones? Was it six months? I remember we started to see the results. We had an outage. That was the thing that really did it. Um... We had an outage on the last day of the quarter. This is many moons ago. And I remember there were, I was cry- there were tears over it. Because um, uh, you're really impacting your customers' lives when that kind of thing happened. It was, it was the worst day. Uh, and that's when we really had to come to Jesus of we need to change. It, was, it wasn't that board member's comment. It was more that outage. It was like, we need to change everything. We need to change the way we build products. We need to change. We put this thing called um, Compass in, and we put in this thing called Main Sale to make sure that never happened again. Were those, those are infrastructure monitoring type yeah, products? Basically, but... Main sale is something where at the very bottom of the main sale is the, the app can never go down. And then we go up through several layers and you can't create a new feature unless below the line 
you're at A plus status and all the things under that line. And so we continue to do that. And if any teams having stability issues, we put them in code red, they have to get cleaned up down below the line. So we changed the culture of the company uh, in addition to the P&L and the way we build products. And that really paid off. We became a, we're a very product-centric, customer-centric company. We didn't used to be. Did uh, did that happen? One of the things I know Jay Simons is on your board, and yep. Jay, Jay's a friend, and you, you would do field trips, right? Maybe it was a, a vestige of your your Steve Jobs uh, and Mark Benioff single day, but you, you you were very much a Boston company, right? Which maybe was uh, a ding for a lot of the Silicon Valley uh, Definitely companies. A ding. But <laughs> there's there's advantages there, right? There's a two at least very good local schools that you can hire from. Uh, and at the time, you're probably competing with not uh, Facebook and Google. You're competing with Akamai and Wayfair exactly. and whoever else, right? Exactly. So you were able to poach talent. But how were you able to internalize aspects of being a Silicon Valley company and doing it in Boston? Yep. We used to always refer to or still refer to ourselves as a West Coast company on the East Coast. And I used to run and very much inspired by that Steve Jobs, Mark Benioff trip, a field trip to the West Coast. And I met Jay Simons on one of those field trips. One of the early field trips was on um, freemium. Yeah, we wanted to get really smart about freemium. For people that don't know Jay, he's he was the president of Atlassian for a long time. Now he's he's uh, unfortunately a VC, but and he was sort of the grand poobah of lightweight go to market models, and he was quite. He was originally VP of marketing, and then yeah. worked his way up as Atlassian yeah. and got he bigger was, and bigger. He was really big on that. And Atlassian, if you look at their geography and their P and L for B two B company, that, that's. I kind of think it was mid-market, like they spend nothing on sales and marketing. It's very product-driven. And anyway, I got some time in his calendar with the team. We asked him a lot of questions. I thought he was Freeman. He wasn't. He was a master of the trial. Um, but then we visited DocuSign. We visited uh, Dropbox. We visited Google, maybe one or two others. And we all as a team internalized the lessons together. And then when we came back, we're like, okay, we got it. Here's the takeaways. Here's all the changes we need to make. And we did one of those a year on a different topic. And that helped us, the whole team stay plugged into the West Coast, helped us think like a West Coast company, stay on the cutting edge. How do you actually, like in that shift and being more bottoms up and what you were able to internalize from Atlassian, maybe it was a part and parcel to the MPS thing that you guys did as well. But what were the the kind of shifts that, that you actually were that came away from those Dropbox and Atlassian and all those discussions. And this goes back to earlier in the conversation, we started our sales business and it was a freemium model. Um, and then we were trying to apply that to the main business and we we're trying to convince the rest of the organization that this thing's gonna work. It's hard to convince them because our model worked already on the marketing side. It was an inside sales based model. It was a heavy touch inside model. And so it was an effort to convince them. And so just hearing Jay and all these other really impressive folks talk about how it can work in B2B um, was convincing. And then we got into more details of like, how do you measure this stuff? Is it weekly active users, daily active users? Like we get into the minutia of the early parts of product-like growth on that that helped us get educated. So one of the other things, I guess, is you, you've talked about one of the big shifts for a company is going from, or for, for HubSpot specifically, was going from uh, kind of, I guess it was moving from being employee-focused to being customer-focused. Yep. Uh, what 
maybe this is related to all of these things, but what was being employee focused? Because I, I've heard you say that uh, your product is both, you have a product for your uh, customers, which is actually your product, and then you have your culture, which is a product for your employees. And so how do you think about the tension and what was that shift that you, that you guys thought through of going from customer cent- or employee-centric to customer-centric? I remember, well, we also measure NPS of our employees and we always have. EMPS. EMPS. And we use. And you always rate very highly on culture and best place to work and win all these awards, right? I, there's a reason for that. We really think a lot about it and try to make an amazing. We try to make an amazing place to work. It's not the massages. Uh, there are no massages. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think ping pong massages and any of that really matters in those things. I think it's about do people resonate with the mission? Do they think management's making smart decisions? Uh, and it's more that stuff than the ping pong, the massages. Uh, but we, I can tell you a story on how we got into all the culture stuff. It, yeah. It, 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 the first two years of HubSpot, we didn't, culture was, was a four letter word. Like we weren't allowed to talk about it. It's sort of like stock price at HubSpot now. Uh, Why? Because we just couldn't measure it. We were analytical people. I don't know. Felt too nebulous. Felt squishy. Yeah. Um, and then I joined and I recommend other founders do this as CEO group. And there were 10 CEOs that got together once a quarter and they picked a topic and went very deep. And I remember I, I largely joined it because of Colin Engel was on it. And Colin is the founder of iRobot that makes those Roomba vacuum cleaners. And I would describe my relationship with Colin at the time as man crush. I had a man crush on him. Like he was, he was on my Mount Rushmore of founders. He, and he was like five years ahead of me on the journey. And I remember I sat down for the first meeting. I didn't know what the topic was. And I sat right next to Colin, of course. Uh, and it was culture. And I thought, oh, crap, I don't have anything to add. I think it's a waste of time. And then at lunch, Colin pulled me over and he said, why are you so quiet? You don't like this topic, do you? And I said, no, I think it's a waste of time. He said, culture. Culture is how people make decisions when you're not in the room. Culture is how you really scale a company. I said, okay. Well, I engaged, listened. It was pretty good. Next morning, I'm in the office. I bump into Darmesh, and he says, how was it? How's Colin? Was it really good? I said, yeah, it was really good. He said, what was the topic? I said, it was culture. He said, oh, that's really too bad. I said, no, Darmesh. Culture is how people make decisions when you're not in the room. Culture is how you really scale a company. And so from that point on, we started thinking heavily about two products, a product we sell to our customers and a product we effectively sell to our employees. We wanted both products to continually improve. We want a high NPS on both products and continue to involve them. Uh, we promoted someone internally who was in the marketing organization to run HR to really focus on this and still running at Katie Burke. And that has really served us quite well. How, how do you focus on culture? Like, what, what is it that, I mean, obviously, back to our manage for what you measure, I'm sure having EMPS and all of that. But like, did you come up with set of values and just continue to iterate on that? Did you make sure people are whole, heard? Did you implement a new performance management system? Like, what were sort of the tactics that you there did? Were two, there were two basic things that founders, all founders can do. Um, one is just start measuring employee net promoter score, scores and just send the same survey you sell to 10 to your customers. On a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to refer a friend to work at XYZ company? 
why and leave a form field. And, and how often were you doing it? Once a quarter. And we've done it once a quarter now for 14 years. People will write novels, <laughs> really write novels. And the key is we published then all of the answers on our wiki. And we, at the time, we had the world's most, Jay would tell us, you have the world's most active wiki. And we would publish everyone's answers. So everyone could see in a very transparent way what the issues were that everybody Did else Did you remove played. any uh, names and stuff? Maybe we a little bit of sanitation? We still remove names. We re- remove foul language. But it, 99% of it's out there. Uh, if someone's slamming me on there for some reason, it's on there. Uh, and the important part is putting it on there. And then what we would, we used to, we used to go to this restaurant next to the HubSpot called Similons. And Similons, it was a Thai restaurant. Like a lot of Thai restaurants, it's, it's a menu has got a plastic covering and then there's chilies. And one chili means it's a little hot and five chilies means, holy crap, that's a hot dish. And so we would categorize all of the long form responses into a Similon style menu with like, here are the five chili ones, here's the four chili. And we'd respond to everyone. And sometimes the response was, yes, I know you want, everyone wants double, to have your salaries doubled. We're not going to do that. And here's why. Uh, so we oftentimes would, would, whatever they were asking for or wanted, we would do. But many times you wouldn't and would explain why. And that over time built up a lot of trust that transparency equals trust. Transparency equals speed. Um, and that over time really helped us. So that's one thing I would do. The second thing I would do would put together a, we call it our culture code, call it whatever you want, but like a deck that describes your relationship between the company and the employee. And we did that originally. And we did, by the way, Netflix did this first. Uh, they built a deck describing kind of their culture, and it was great. But, man, Netflix culture was totally different than what we wanted our culture to be. So we built our own. It was totally different. It was based on a bunch of surveys, and we, we hired somebody to help us put it together. And then um, it described what it's like to be a HubSpotter. And then we evolved it over the course of 16 years. And then every six months or so, we'll evolve it. And I I sat next to Dharmesh on the flight over last night, and we were debating <laughs> making a change to the culture deck. So that thing's a living... It's like the U.S. Constitution. You can change it. It's kind of hard to change, but you can change it. So that's evolved quite a bit over time. How many pages is the... It's 128 pages. 128 pages. What did it start out at? 128. Really? Yes. You've kept it consistent? Yes. And we pulled stuff out and added it. And blood this, in, blood out, one for one. Exactly. Um and the stuff that tends to get pulled out is when we talk the talk on something and the employees are like, you know, you talk the talk on that, but you didn't walk the walk. So either walk the damn walk or take it out. And so that that creates the debate. One of the I mean, we've had this whole uh, bring your bring your whole self to work element of it. And I, I think generationally, right, it used to be people would switch jobs every, I mean, whatever, Our, uh, my parents' uh, generation sort of yeah. stayed with one job for extended periods of time. And then people now, uh, 18 months is a good tour of duty, it seems like, in a lot of our tech companies. How did you, in this, the social issues that we talked about with the pandemic and all of that, obviously manifested itself in a lot of different ways for CEOs. How, how does HubSpot think about that, uh, of how much of social issues are going to be uh, something that you guys discuss in, in mass, George Floyd's murder, all these different things. Like, were these were these things that you had to rethink over the course of, uh, in the handbook, over the course of the, the last couple of years? Big time. Um, 
I just never thought of my job as the founder and the CEO as weighing in on these issues. Like I had only worked for two other companies before this and these wouldn't have come out of the CEO's mouth. Um, but a confluence of just like the, the just craziness of what was going on, for example, that Joy, George Floyd situation was just, you couldn't ignore it. Um, and just being slapped in the face by it. Combined with the fact I just think modern employees have a different expectation of their relationship with their CEO and their company. And I don't think this was necessarily the case when we started HubSpot, but the employees who have joined over time and the existing employees who are my age, let's say, there's just a totally different set of expectations on what it's like to be an employee in that relationship with the CEO and the relationship between the values of the company. And I think it's dangerous not to continue to evolve to match the way employees actually live and think and work. And so, so uh, how did how did that uh, change for, for you all? Like, did, is this something that you guys made what was implicit, explicit in those 128 pages? It was or? exactly what we did. We were very, we, we reacted to it right away. We had a company meeting the next day about it. We changed the culture code and we made a series. And I remember what we said. We said, we're, we said, we think what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to talk the talk on this and not walk the walk. So we're going to walk the walk. And we put in a series of long-lasting, permanent initiatives um, that persist today. I just had a, uh, a Zoom with all with our Black ERG last week talking about all this stuff. So we did walk the walk on it, and I feel really good about that. Um, but yeah, we we jumped on it, and it changed the way we thought about the role of the CEO. By the way, the role of the CEO is not easy; it's harder than it used to be. And uh, the role of the company has changed. And I just and I don't see employees joining today lightening up on the way they think about that kind of stuff. What about there? there's a deck of mistakes that you all keep as well? Or does that still exist? Um, so, yeah, sort of. So what we had a uh, monthly we thought sun rises and sets at HubSpot from the very beginning, not on the quarter, but on the month. Now it's kind of the day, but sort of the month. Uh, and. <clears throat> we used to have a PowerPoint deck that would go out. A guy named Brad Coffee would produce it on the first day of every month with like, here are all the stats. Here are website visitors, leads, customer, all the stuff. And um, we would make mistakes, you know, often. As a startup, you're going to make tons of mistakes. And I don't think it matters how many mistakes you have. It's about not making that same darn mistake twice or three times. And so every time we made a mistake, we often would say, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have known which piece of data that might have enabled us to avoid stepping in that pothole? And oftentimes we would come back to data. So we would go and think about that and say, okay, here's the report we should look at every month so that we can keep an eye on this metric. So for example, we fell behind on hiring on support heads. So you fall behind on hiring and support heads, at some point you're going to have poor support experiences, you're going to have people canceling like it's going to ripple. And we weren't looking that closely at that. And so then they're, okay, let's have a slide in the deck of how many support reps do we have? What's the tenure of your average support rep? What's the funnel of new candidates as support rep? And so we're just not going to step in that, that, you know, pothole again. We just call them potholes. Did Brad keep this, the, yeah. this, uh, and, and is that something that people could go reference and just make sure we're not 
we're not. Everyone saw it. I mean, the whole company would get that in the first day of the month. I would definitely flip through it. And I knew I, I could look at every slide and be like, oh, I remember that mistake, that mistake, that mistake, that mistake. Uh, and it's it was our way of avoiding making those same errors over and over again. That was super useful. Now, uh, what what about we we touched on earlier PTC as well as uh, Ray uh, Ray Ozzy was the other company you mentioned two companies you worked at right and one was kind of the iconic uh, sales culture I think I mean maybe along Oracle for software sales yep. PTC and then the other was kind of a, a original I mean Ray Ozzy for people that don't know was the founder of Lotus. Uh, way back when, and ultimately became the CTO of Microsoft, right, and ran a lot of uh, productivity apps, a lot of the stuff we use today. Yep. Interesting that you, you sort of grew up in the the bottoms up world before it was even a thing, right? Sort of this PLG uh, side of the house, and then PTC as well. Can you talk about those two experiences? And it actually went the other way around. I started at PTC. I was their first BDR, and. PTC was a sales machine. We really got good at hiring sales reps, training sales reps, promoting sales reps, doing international. What was that? What was it that just uh, made that so good? We had a really good head of sales and a sales-focused CEO. Who was the head of sales at that point? It was a guy named Richard Harrison. He's retired now. And then it became a guy named John McMahon, whose fingerprints are all over Silicon Valley. McMahon's a a legend. McMahon Uh, was my boss and my mentor. And I remember on this, I I had never met McMahon. He was on the West Coast and I was in Boston. And there was one day the PTC decided, we're going to do international. And on the very same day, they moved him to the Netherlands and they moved me to Tokyo. And they're like, John's head of international, you work for this guy, John. And I'm like, great. And like, we would communicate via fax. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, and so McMahon, I had a fax in my bedroom like all night. So, so McMahon, for people that don't know, uh, John was, uh, after PTC, went to Blade Logic with David Cheria, was the CEO of Blade Logic. Dave is now the CEO of Mongo. And John has, uh, he's sort of the, the father of, uh, of all these PTC mafia kind of yep. crew. That's he's wrote. on a bunch of good boards, Snowflake, a whole bunch of good boards. And he's, he's, a, he's, he's a Jersey guy. He's Jersey. He's a boxer. He's he's one of the more intimidating people you meet in your entire life. But he's got a heart of gold underneath those oh, yeah, steely eyes. Guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, and so so uh, so McMahon, you sort of learned all the outbound sales things yes. that you ultimately uh, sort of fought against in some ways. And then what about Ray Ozzy? Opposite. I mean, if if I mean, the politics of PTC was very right of center. The politics of Ray Ozzy, who he didn't found Lotus, but he's the father of Lotus Notes. Mitch, uh, I guess Mitch Kapoor yeah, was the, the founder. founder but. but Ray was a product person in his soul. And at PTC, I learned in very, very left of center. But at PTC, I learned about how do you run a very disciplined organization? How do you build a high-performance sales organization? Um, they were very, very good at that. And it group I learned how Ray Ozzy thought about building products and I remember him describing his process for thinking about coming up with new products how he came up with Lotus Notes how he came up with the product we were selling called Groove which eventually got bought by Microsoft and it really sticking in my head and I brought both of those lessons with me when we started HubSpot and man they're in, they're both in Ray Ozzy and John McMahon and PTC are in, in really inside the hallways of HubSpot in, in a big way. What was the product Groove? Was it was kind of like a original Airtable of some sorts, right? It I was mean, way brilliant. too early for it its was, generation. It was brilliant. Time. It was just five, ten years too early. It was Airtable slash Slack, Trello, slash Dropbox. Yeah. It was an all-in-one collaboration. And one of the things I got from him is he was very early on freemium. 
and we didn't have a lot of traction. Like it was an early product and like it never really took off. But I got to start learning about that light touch product led growth motion from Ray back in um, back in my groove days. And then Ray, we got acquired. Ray took um, um, Bill Gates' job as CTO. I believe he's the one who first laid out the memo of what Azure would be. You know, he's oh, a brilliant product person. And the way he thought about products is very much the way we think about products at HubSpot. What um, What about your schedule? So, so you are, I think you're self-described a prioritizer, a ruthless prioritizer. Uh, and you, but you also, even in the early days, you would take a day off uh, from going into the office or scheduled meetings or what was that? How, how do you actually organize your schedule? I don't think it's that unusual today. It was unusual back then. But once a week, every Wednesday, I just would have a no meeting Wednesday so I could kind of introvert out and work on projects. I could write, I could prepare my inbound presentation, whatever it would be. You do a great job faking as an extrovert. Thank I would you. Say. And it, it, by the way, it's faking. It's yeah. a, I'm a fake. Because Darmesh is. He very, doesn't fake it at all. He's, he's very introverted, yes. right? Yes. He wears it on his, as a point of pride. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess that goes back to your meeting, right? Uh, originally, the uh, his wife had to serve as the facilitator, or uh, you didn't pass the original uh, test to, to meet with him. Well, I can tell you the whole story. Uh, it was the night before classes started at Sloan. And it's at the Marriott in Kendall Square in Cambridge. And I'm, I'm on my second Sam Adams. And Very Boston. Yes. Uh, this woman walks up to me. And she's peppering me with questions. Like, it was an, I was like, these MIT people are strange. She's peppering me. And then kind of got up and walked away. She was polite about it, but got up and walked away. And it turns out, Darmesh's strategy when he goes to a party is he finds the biggest plant in the whole room and he hides behind it. And then he sends his wife out to scout people he might, you know, want to talk to. And so she was walking, work in the room. And the scouting report on me was, you'll never like him. He likes the Red Sox. He worked at PTC. You two will never hit it off. So we didn't talk that day. We we really didn't talk or, like, click it all for quite a ways into Sloan. Um, And uh, the the three of us laugh about that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How? I mean, you, you all have been in now, I guess it's, what, 18 years? When, when HubSpot was founded in 06? Yeah, but we were working on it in like 04, 05. So, so we're approaching 20 years. Of, yes. What 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 has allowed you guys to be in this monogamous business marriage for uh, for so <laughs> long? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Other, there are other interlopers at times, but I uh, I mean, it's been the two of you for, yeah. for a very long time. What... Uh, to other people when they're evaluating co-founders or whatever it is, what do you think's allowed this to succeed? That's a good question. I sort of think of the two of us if there's a Venn diagram. You know, he very much came from the engineering side and I came from the sales side. But we had an overlap in like we wanted to to enable we we like we want to sell the startups and we want to help your startups and scale ups. Like that's always been our thing. Um, and we wanted to build a company that would be around for decades that our kids would be proud of. So we were very focused on the long term and. And not afraid to take a big swing at it, um, but we complemented each other really well on on that sides of the uh, on both sides of that equation. I think a trap some founders fall into would be like three developers start a company, they're terrific and they build a product, but there's no one kind of thinking about that other side of the equation. Or two ex McKinsey people, like it's Sloan, this happens all the time. Two ex McKinsey people start a company and like no one can really build and maybe no one can completely sell. Um, and so I think we got that Venn diagram right. I think 
we like each other. I love him, actually. I think I, I have a love relationship with my co-founder after all these years. He's a wonderful human, huge heart, huge integrity, uh, very bright. Um, yeah, we just get along real, real well. And over time, it hasn't been a struggle. It really hasn't been a struggle. It's just kind of worked. That's amazing. Now, uh, I guess before I let you hop, uh, two final ones. So one, Climate Now. So yep. Propeller Fund. That's your, I guess, did you actually raise outside capital for it? Maybe talk a little bit about what you're doing. I did. I wanted to get into climate, and I didn't know which angle I wanted to commit it, uh, come into it with. And so I started by kind of talking to founders and investors. And the more people know about climate change, the more depressing they are. I mean, it was just <laughs> depressing. I did like a learning tour like I tend to do. And there wasn't a lot of optimism. And then one of my stops on the tour was the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is like the MIT of the ocean. In Boston. It's on Cape Cod, actually. Cape Cod. Um, and oceanographers are optimistic about climate change. Um, and it was a breath of fresh air. And I spoke to lots of oceanographers outside of there. I mean, the ocean got us out of the last ice age. The ocean... Is contains most of the carbon dioxide already. The ocean absorbs 90% of the excess heat getting kicked off uh, the earth. The ocean produces half our oxygen. Like the ocean's kind of the, it's the unsung hero in climate change. It should be the MVP in it. Um, and everyone kind of treats the ocean as the victim, the, 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 the plastic issues. When I, and yes, it is a victim and we should clean up the plastic. But the ocean can do a large part of the heavy lifting of helping us get out of the climate change pickle. And no one was doing anything about it. No one was investing How can it get it. us out of the climate change pickle? It can absorb way, way, way more carbon dioxide than it currently is. And it already absorbs massive amounts of carbon dioxide. That's a really, really important way of, of fixing climate change. Um, and so we have a number of investments around that. Um, and so I started a fund. It's a $150 million fund with a bunch of ocean people because I'm not an ocean person. I'm a software person. And we make climate investments focused on the ocean. I ended up partnering with Woods Hole Oceanographics. So they work on all the uh, investment opportunities with us. We'll spin IP out of there. I partner with MIT. We run a thing called an Ocean MBA for ocean entrepreneurs or people who want to get into the ocean and start a company around there. And we're off to the races, but at about a year, it's... it's I'm sure you love all your children and all the investments you've made the same. Any particular one that's super cool to highlight? This one isn't a carbon dioxide one, but it's cool. It's two women founders that came from the desalination industry. Desalination is, you know, turning ocean water into fresh water. Of course. And um, they basically built a new type of filter. There's a lot of lithium floating freely in the ocean, so they want to turn every desalination plant into a lithium mine. And so that's one of my favorites. I think it's going to be a very, very what, large what, what does an investment in that look like? Do they? I mean, this is like old school CapEx. Uh, I, uh, that is yeah. going to be some, I mean, lithium is going to be a, a, a good business uh, if, if all this stuff comes together. But yeah, with some of our stuff is hardware. Some of it's software. How much, how much money uh, will a company like that raise in its initial? Oh, initially we just put in, we put in a million dollars, I think, into that company. It's called Olican. Um, but the, you know, we'll end up putting a whole, you know, that'll be well over a hundred million dollars of money. We'll go into that thing. That's great. Yeah. 
Well, I can't let you hop before uh, AI is on the tip of everyone's sure. tongue these days. What's your perspective? I mean, HubSpot has initiatives around this. What, yep. What's your perspective on uh, that and how it's going to impact? I mean, I, I don't know when we're going to release this, but last week Microsoft announced all their co-pilot stuff for I Office. I watched a video this morning. It's sweet. It's, it's very impressive. Super People impressive. People forget Microsoft was, you know, a very feared and innovative company they 20 years ago. And uh, it's pretty they're impressive back. to see what they're executing. Uh, on. Hats off to Satya Nadella. Um, and how we always talk about HubSpot. We're big and fast. They're big and fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, this, I don't think this is a small thing. I think this is a disruptive innovation. It's kind of like AWS was a disruptive innovation that led to a million SaaS companies. The iPhone was a disruptive innovation that led to so many mobile applications. I think this is similar. Um, and so HubSpot's got a, a big bet on it. Um, and I think one of the things, so one of our investors is a guy named Pat Grady at Sequoia, and he always likes to describe the world as, as a new innovation comes along and you have a battle between startups who have the new innovation and no distribution capacity and incumbents who don't have the innovation but lots of distribution capacity. And it's a race. Can the startup get the distribution first or can the big company get the innovation first? In the case of AI, and, and this was very much shown in the in basically the the uh, uh, Microsoft Office demo that came out. There's a lot of benefits to being an incumbent in this game, and I think HubSpot will really enjoy its incumbency. If you look at what um, Copilot is doing, is it's using, of course, uh, ChatGPT, but it's also using all of the emails you've ever sent, all of the Word documents you've ever sent, and it's like, wow, that's one plus one equals 100,000. And it's embedded in your existing... It's awesome. And HubSpot's got that same advantage where you run your whole darn front office on HubSpot. Every piece of content, every email, every CRM record, every chat, you name it, is in there. And if you combine all that HubSpot intelligence that's in there with the ChatGPT stuff, you create something very, very special. So... We've done a bunch of stuff. One of the things I think is super innovative is ChatSpot, ChatSpot.ai, and that thing's blown up on us. What is what is what is it's it exactly do? that? It's very similar to uh, what Microsoft's doing. It's a chat interface to HubSpot, and so um, and you can access from there all of the OpenAI stuff and all of your HubSpot stuff. So let's say you're a casual user of HubSpot. Instead of wanting to go and click in a few five, six clicks to find a graph of how many leads did we get last month? How does that compare to the same month a year ago, which is like 15 clicks? Just ask that question and the graph will show up. Oh, I like that. Can you show me the same information for last month over year over year? Or show me all the prospects in our database that are at a certain level in San Francisco because I'm going to visit it next week. I'd like to see that list. Or... um, Write me a blog article about AI and how it's going to impact the marketing automation industry. Make it funny and add a picture to it. Like that's the interface. So you're able to pull all your HubSpot data in and it's it learns over time and it gets smarter. It's super powerful. Very cool. Yeah. It's exciting. It's a it's I think it's a really exciting time. And like you didn't ask me about this, but like all the SVB stuff and like Well, let's talk yeah. I mean there's been so much up and down in tech and it's it's been. It's what's your What's your perspective on tech as an industry and how it's viewed uh, yep. going forward? I mean, I, that's the thread that I find most interesting. SVB 
it was a crazy day, right? And it was a crazy experience. And yeah. I have tons of sympathy uh, for a lot of the people in our portfolio, the people that worked at SVB, right? There's a, I mean, there's oh, yeah. a ton of fault to be had uh, at the higher ups. But what's your perspective on tech going going forward at large? Because AI is an element of it. There's an element of optimism there. If I look at some of the trends that we've seen over the course of the last 15 years, to some extent, some of them are getting long in the tooth, right? Like bottoms up SAS is, you know, I mean, we're, we're, I don't know if we're in the ninth inning, but yeah. we're in what do the, you want, you want to be the, the 10 millionth in one SAS company, the, the Kanban board, like yeah. that you're doing the one more on which one your, of our employees, this guy, uh, Scott Brinker puts together the, he calls it the MarTech landscape, which is like basically the CRM landscape. And he breaks it into like 30 categories. He was one of the OG infographic yes. Uh, folks. Yes. And he put the original one together. It had 17 MarTech marketing software companies in it. And now there's north of 10,000. And it's just, and there's more every day. Which is amazing because it's so cheap to start yeah. a company versus when you were starting it way back yes. when to reach distribution. But Easier at the same and easier time. to start, harder and harder to scale. Harder and harder to reach distribution. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting moment. You've got headwinds and tailwinds. The, the, the headwinds are... I think that SVB crisis rattled everybody a little bit. Um, in what way? I mean, obviously, there's implications of where you manage your cash and treasuries and all that. But I don't think that's it. It's more. Um, it's going to be harder to tack on debt on every A round, B round, like you guys. I think it's going to impact you a little bit. Um, it maybe just rattles LPs a little bit who are thinking about investing in funds. Um, it's just it's a rattling. I don't think it's long the, the weirdest one for me is the social element of venture capital was this weird sort of niche cottage industry where a lot of people didn't know exactly what it was. Yeah. In the last ten years, it's become central to a bunch of different uh, the, the asset class has grown. Right? I don't know what uh, people investing in Twitter or the latest Stripe round at a very big price. Like I, I'm not, that's not the venture capital industry of 20 years ago. Not to say whatever, whatever you want to say about those rounds or whatever, uh, that's not what the industry was. So there's one element of the asset class has just been institutionalized. And there's another element of the personalities themselves sort of being better known and much more in the, the cultural center of the conversation and particularly VCs, but Elon Musk falls in this bucket as well of being very central to hosting SNL and being on the news all the time and all that. And so tech in a weird way has a focus that uh, from from the mainstream that I think people didn't fully appreciate. And I think SVB really brought a lot of that criticism to light for different people, I think. I think you're right. I don't think it was a great moment for tech. <laughs> yeah. And a bunch uh, of different vectors. Yeah. I do think this headwinds and tailwinds. I think the headwinds are... I think that was a little headwind, not a huge one. This is the obvious headwind of, you know, we went through, let's call it what it is. It was a bubble in 21. Valuations got crazy. I think we're back down to where we were in 2000. It's like 2019 again, maybe a tougher environment. Um, and I think so many people entered the industry and they're still stuck in that 221 mindset. People just need to get over it. It's a whole new world. And I don't think that's coming back. Um I think the tailwinds are, I do think there's a big disruption of innovation happening that's going to sail a ton of ships and be a boon to productivity for all of us, all of humanity. And I do think climate tech is like, you saw that there's been a giant tech wave. There's a giant biotech wave that people don't talk about in our world. That's but it's huge. Zach, I, Zach Weinberg is a, uh, I don't know if you know Zach, but he's a... Uh, He's a occasional co-host of this, and he now has a YC for biotech. And so YC is doing climate tech now, too. It's fascinating to go down the rabbit hole of some of that stuff that they're doing. I think it's going to be a giant industry. So there's definitely headwinds and tailwinds. I am not worried about tech. 
I'm not. There's so much innovation that's happening. Tech has done so much good for the world. I think I'm a tech optimist. There's a messaging problem that exists, though. I don't think people are aware of... I think there's a messenger problem. Messenger, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't need to call people out by name, but uh, even the most prominent VCs, I would say, are uh, have different elements of polarization in their message. The FTX thing, too, is another, like, rattle. I think crypto in general, uh, I would say. FTX specifically, but crypto in general. You think the last three years, if you're a tech CEO, you had COVID, the health crisis. You had COVID... Well, is that going to be a depression or a recession? COVID boom. Now we're in, call it COVID recession. You had crypto blow up. You have banking crisis. It's like one darn thing after another. Social issues that that came up around. It's been really a wild ride. Uh, I just think since Yamini took over as CEO of HubSpot, I joked with her this morning. I'm like, all this is your fault. All this crazy stuff that happened. You wrote it all the way up, right? I I, I said, you brought all this on. You you knew a good uh, good time to play your walk-off music, I I guess, as CEO. kind of of did get lucky on that one. Yeah, you left her to deal with all. No, it'll be interesting. I do think there's a messenger messaging, to your point, problem. And we also need to be more communicative about not just the dog walking apps or whatever people want to criticize tech for, the D2C businesses with upside down unit economics and all of that, right? There's also uh, all this good that's happening from yeah. a, uh, you talked about biotech and, and climate tech and healthcare and all these things. And so I think we- yeah, it's just even just the, the, the what GPT is going to, what AI is going to do, it's going to make everyone way more productive over the next 10 years. And that's going to hit everybody outside of tech. Yeah. Well, good. Anything I didn't hit? A lot. Yeah. We should do a whole thing on the Grateful Dead. I would I would welcome that. <laughs> I uh I appreciate I appreciate you doing this. I, I wouldn't profess myself a deadhead, but I do know nugs.net and I used to get fish and grateful dead songs from that when I was yep. in the late nineties. So yep. well, thank thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for having me on. So that'll do it for the 57th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Thank you, Brian Halligan, for coming on and being uh, such an entertaining guest. Thank you to Rashad and Sam for their efforts with the episode. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, We will be back next week with another guest on another episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Have a good weekend, everyone. 